Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Stand for the reading God's Word. 1 Timothy chapter 1, and I'll read verses 1 through 11. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus, our Lord. As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, For those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. So where are we now at in this first letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy? Paul has greeted his spiritual son in the faith and immediately gotten into his his instructions for Pastor Timothy. Uh, The first exhortation is for, for Timothy to forbid certain men to teach heterodox doctrines. Such teaching, Paul writes, gives rise to mere speculation rather than the household law of God, which is by faith. Heterodox doctrine leads to speculation because it is speculation itself. Uh, If what you are basing your doctrine on is from outside the word of God, it's going to be speculation. Such teaching has no grounding and derives from the imagination of men rather than the eternal truth of God. So speculations heaped upon speculations, speculations heaped upon speculation after speculation after speculation is the end result of heterodoxy. In every age of the church, pastors have had to warn her congregations not 
warn their congregations not to pay attention to heterodox doctrine, especially, especially because they always seem to be attractively packaged by contemporaries, by academics, by certainly today publishing companies. I remember just a few years ago when the slick and attractive ministry of New Spring Church, a branch of which is right over by Sam's Club, began teaching the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments. Um, And the pastor said they weren't commands but were promises. Well, that's great, isn't it? No more commands from God. We have only promises. Um, What a wonderful thing to have a much more positive approach because to have a God that that gives prohibitions would be a buzzkill. It would be contrary to a completely law-hating doctrinal system. And so speculations heaped upon speculations, such as the result of teaching derived from the brains of men rather than the word of God. But heterodoxy sells, especially to um, consumers of it who live with that, um, that diminishing capacity. We're, we're, we're um, reducing our thoughts to 140 characters. Um, heterodoxy appeals to those who want religion without the Bible, who want discipline without discipleship, or discipleship without discipline. Right, who want church without authority, who want emotion without an object outside the self, just inward emotion. And so bad doctrine appeals to those who want to remain in their flesh and yet have some semblance of religious rigor or spirituality or mystical experience, whatever it may be. And the practitioners of bad doctrine are quite happy to dispense such wicked speculations as long as the people pay them for it and praise them for it. In his second letter to Timothy, Paul speaks to the people's buying into the teaching of the false prophets. He writes, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. The easiest way to accumulate such teachers is to flatter and to pay for it. And then you're on the path to speculations upon pleasing speculations upon more pleasing speculations. Notice what that passage from 2 Timothy that I read says. They will not endure sound doctrine. They won't endure it. As if sound doctrine, good doctrine, is something that has to be endured. Um, They will reject what is written in the Word. They will want to have their ears tickled. They will want... Uh, to hear what pleases them, not what challenges them, not what leads certainly to repentance. They will 
um, they will want those kinds of teachers and they will accumulate them. And what kind of teachers, again, those who are, or what kind of teachings, those who are in, uh, that are in accordance with their desires. They like those teachers that will affirm them in their sin. And the end result of all this, they will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. That's what he's just warned Timothy at the beginning of the first letter to avoid. Myths breed myths. Speculations breed speculations. And all of it is delightful because it leaves a man to love his sins. It leaves a man to enjoy his pleasures. And when I say him and use the generic masculine, ladies, I include you in it. I intentionally use that kind of language, okay? That is not to exclude you. That is to intentionally include you, okay? It's called the generic masculine. Um, But in this scheme of accumulating teachers in accordance with your desires, there's no place for the commands of God in such a scheme. Those are thrown out. All is positive. All is affirmative. All is awash in sunshine and and glitter and sparkles and sprinkles, right? And and its end is hell. Its end is hell. But now look back at verse 5 in 1 Timothy 1. Paul writes, the goal and... And our translation says the goal of our instruction, but it should say the goal of the command or the goal of the commandments. The goal of the command is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And so we have to understand that Paul is combating a faulty view of the law of God that was developing in Ephesus. Verse 6 and 7 make that obvious, very clear. Paul writes, For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. They want to teach the law, but their teaching, though confidently stated, lacks understanding. They are getting it wrong. If they got the command of God for the Christian right, it would correspond to what Paul says in verse 5. The goal, the ends, the goal of the law is three things. The end of the commandment is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Now, I think those three things, love, a good conscience, a sincere faith, correspond to the three uses of the law that are taught in Scripture. What are those three uses? Here's the summary. The law is a mirror, the law is a restrainer, and the law is a stimulus. A mirror, a restrainer, a stimulus. Um, I'll take each of those in turn. The first use of the law is this. It shows us who we are, right? It's a mirror showing us our sinfulness, and thereby, what does it do? It pushes us toward a sincere faith, 
right? Unbelievers are affected by this use of the law. It takes us to the end of ourselves and by God's grace and spirit leads us to put our faith in Jesus Christ. Knowing our unrighteousness makes us seek out a savior. Here's Calvin's explanation of this first use of the law. He says, by exhibiting the righteousness of God, in other words, the righteousness which alone is acceptable to God, it admonishes everyone of his own unrighteousness, informs, convicts, and finally condemns him. This is necessary, Calvin writes, in order that that man who is blind and intoxicated with self-love may be brought once to know and to confess his weakness and impurity. Scripture puts it like this, this first use of the law. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Take one of the Ten Commandments, you shall not covet. All men have broken this command because all have sinfully desired to have that which was not theirs to have. We see this especially in small children. If one child takes a toy up, almost immediately another child will want that particular toy. right? And once he has realized it, um, or once he has seen that other child take up the other toy, he has no interest in anything else. But the commands not to covet reveals, it points out, it provokes a proper understanding of our covetousness. And so the first use of, of the law is to reveal our sin like a mirror reveals the way we look when we look into it. The second use of the law is often referred to as the civil use. The law of God restrains evil in a society. Okay, particularly as the laws of our government are based upon the laws of God. It pushes all men, believers and unbelievers, toward a good conscience. It is only possible because of that law written on the heart. Calvin explains the second office of the law is by means of its fearful denunciations and the consequent dread of punishment to curb those who, unless fenced, have no regard for what is morally right and what is justice. Scripture puts it this way. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. That's the second use of the law. Finally, the third use of the law is as a stimulus. Um, This is the only use that is effective or active for the believer in Jesus Christ, for a regenerate Christian. It's it's not... um, It's not for the unbeliever. It pushes believers toward love from a pure heart. We come to understand how we can please God. How, in fact, we can love God by obeying his commands. 
Calvin writes, the third use has respect to believers in whose heart the Spirit of God already flourishes and reigns. It is the best instrument for enabling them daily to learn with greater truth and certainty what the will of the Lord is and to confirm them in this knowledge. Scripture puts it this way very simply. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Keeping the law, therefore, is love toward God who justified us by his free grace. Jesus, you will remember, taught his disciples a new commandment which was the old one repackaged. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And where is it that we learn how to love? We learn how to love in the law. Teach. It's not vibes and emotions. We learn how to love in the law. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And the Apostle Paul then, in the letter to the Romans, chapter 13, summarizes that. And he says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. In other words, if you want to know how to love, you must know God's laws and seek to keep them. Not as some kind of merit for salvation, but as becomes a member of God's household. He has a household law. The commandments of God, that household law is love. And loving God and loving neighbor is the summary of the law. So, Paul to Timothy summarizes the three uses of the law and what they should lead to. But the goal of the commandment is love from a pure heart corresponding to the third use. A good conscience corresponding to the second civil use. And a sincere faith corresponding to that first use of the law. He puts them in reverse order. That's a joke. But in Ephesus, what's going on? Um, There were those who were teaching a different use of the law. What were they teaching? It is the same as what was taught in Colossae and affected the early church and every era of the church since then. That salvation is... By faith plus some law-keeping. Salvation is by faith plus some law-keeping. Is that how we are saved? No. You are saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Remember what Paul says later. That there are those who are teaching that one... Uh, 
that one must forbid marriage and ab, ab, advocate abstaining from certain foods. And previously, he said they were causing people to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. Things that were being taught must be added to faith in Jesus Christ. This is semi-Pelagianism. Grace, now I'm defining that word, okay? Grace plus some little works. Jesus plus some little works. Faith plus some little works. Or, or put it this way, grace plus some little boast. Jesus plus some little boast. Faith plus some little boast. Remember what Paul teaches elsewhere. If it is by grace... It is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Now, another thing to highlight is the contrast Paul is making between orthodoxy and heterodoxy. The love God commands is concrete and specific and fixed. The end of the heterodox teaching is myths and genealogies and speculations. All very thin and amorphous, changeable, right? There's nothing faddish about the commands of God. They're, they're clear. But those who tickle the ears must embrace every passing theological fad. And you know what these heterodox teachers are doing with the law. They're telling people, contrary to what Paul teaches here, that what is important about the law is not that it reveals sin. But the shadowy stuff, the stuff that allows you to create a myth, allows you to establish some connection to some famous righteous person, allows you to affirm your own natural desires. Paul corrects that false notion and says the utility of the law is this. It reveals man's sin. He's focused on that first use. These false teachers would have them would have been entirely unpersuaded and hostile to such a use of the law. They were turning that first use of the law on its head. They were using the law, get this, to affirm people in their self-righteousness, which will never lead a man to put his faith in Jesus Christ. For, for them, the first use of the law was not to reveal sin, but to reveal their natural righteousness. It was working against faith in Jesus Christ. For them, the law and her shadows was meant to establish righteousness. But to Paul, the use of the law, these men denied and needed to understand was that it condemned. What's good about that? It's glorious that the law condemns. It then becomes a tutor leading us to Christ. These false teachers would never understand their need of an alien righteousness because they were self-righteous. They would never understand that they needed to be given righteousness because in and of themselves, they were lawbreakers. Paul writes this, the law is good. If one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, 
and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And we are with the Apostle Paul, right? We agree that rebels need the law. Right? We agree that the ungodly need the law, that sinners need the law, the unholy need the law. Those who take the Lord's name in vain need the law. Right? Those who kill their mothers and fathers, you're with the Apostle Paul, aren't you? They need the law. Murderers need the law. Kidnappers need the law. Liars and perjurers need the law. On that, we're all agreed. Right? Such sinners need the law to come to the, into their lives and like a bomb lay waste to it. But you notice what I did there. I skipped over a few that the Holy Spirit lists in that list. Pornois and arsenicoites. The sexually immoral, fornicators, adulterers, those who commit incest, and homosexuals. We are clamoring in the church to silence the thunder of the law against sexual sin. And we call that compassion. We call that being compassionate to sinners just like Every other man. We are carving out an exception in the law for, in particular, homosexuals. The effeminate and homosexuals. Those who have same-sex attractions and those who have committed indecent acts. We no longer refer to such sins in the way that God does unnatural abominations. Right? We desire our churches and the PCA to be safe places for those who desire to sodomize men or sodomize women. And the law is no longer allowed to be a tutor for the homosexual man. The church must make sure that the law no longer condemns a man in his sins and leads him to put his faith in Jesus Christ. For blasphemers and murderers, sure, you know, the law is still allowed to convict But the sexually immoral adulterers, practitioners of bestiality, homosexuals, no, it must not convict. Our society is leading the way in this, is doing everything it can to restrict our ability to teach the law of God to homosexuals because... They have no thought of their eternal souls. They have no thought of the judgment to come. And the church, the church is joining with such an inconsiderate program in making sure the pulpits of the churches can no longer preach the law of God to homosexuals. The end result is that souls are lost to hell as they are protected from conviction of their sins. The homosexual our society and our church teaches is the 
one particular person who must be protected from the blessed condemnation of the law and who must be saved in a most peculiar manner without the conviction of law and therefore without faith in Jesus Christ. In carving out a safe place for the effeminate and for homosexuals, and why do I use those words? Those are the words of 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Effeminacy. The effeminate man. In carving out a safe place for the effeminate and for homosexuals, the church is aiming to leave a man dead in his sins. We think it's wonderful to talk of gay spiritual friendships, sexless covenantal relationships, and we tell our testimonies on livingout.org, and we hold seminars where the main speaker teaches that homosexual desires are not sinful, and we hand ring and ham and haw when the Westminster Confession of Faith on the Seventh Commandment is read, or when Leviticus 18 or Romans 1 comes up in the, the readings, Uh, In the liturgy, or when somebody says that, uh, it, it, it means what it says. And we talk in Presbytery, in Calvary Presbytery, how this is a complicated issue and needs study and nuance. And we withhold the convicting force of the Word of God. We don't want to estrange anybody from the gospel. I mean, bridges must be built with every person. We don't want to estrange anybody from the gospel. And somehow, all of that is considered compassionate. Withholding the word of God and the force of the condemnation of God's law from a man dead in his sins is not compassion. Many teachers in the church today have become like the false teachers in Ephesus that Paul is warning Timothy about. They have found a way to make the law apply to a man in a cute way, but not in a cutting way. They have disallowed the first use of the law to be a mirror and have instead used the word of God in a a shrunken down Half way. They have cheapened grace by denying the use of the law to bring conviction and an overwhelming sense of the condemnation of the Word of God and the holiness, therefore, of God Almighty. And without the thunder of the law, there is no reason. No reason ever, no reason at all, no reason in all the ages of the world for a man to put his faith in Jesus Christ. There is no reason without conviction for a person to cry out for a Savior. Because they're righteous, self-righteous, but righteous. And that is precisely where the Apostle Paul ends. These false teachers are saying... The law is not for sinners. And after correcting that false notion, he says that his teaching is according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. 
The primary use of the law for an unbeliever is that it would condemn him and show him his need for Jesus Christ. The false teacher said, no, 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 no. The law establishes our righteousness. It makes us good by producing speculative myths and genealogical applications. And therefore, Jesus becomes unnecessary. I mean, this is the church today, is it not? There is no preaching of conviction. There is no preaching of the law. Every time I preach for your conviction, I get beat up by you. I do. But that blessed conviction for you believers, that blessed conviction is stimulating you to love of God. Right? And if you are an unbeliever, I pray the, 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 the law of God comes crashing down on your shoulders and shows you yourself because you're putrid and miserable and wicked to the core. But God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and he has provided his son, Jesus Christ, as the propitiation for your sin. So may God restore the lawful use of the law to his church. And may it lead inexorably to the to repentance and faith of miserable sinners like us, lawless, rebellious, ungodly, unholy, profane, parent killers, murderers, sexually immoral, homosexuals, kidnappers, liars and perjurers. Now, in bringing conviction of sin and tutoring us to faith in Jesus Christ, may many mouth these glorious words from 1 Corinthians. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That's the law of thundering. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Cut off. Such were some of you. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the spirit of our God. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that it convicts us. Father, I pray that in the reading of it that we would not resist its being a mirror, its being a stimulus to love. Father, that we would, like the psalmist says, Meditate on your law day and night, and thereby become like those trees planted by streams of living water. Father, I pray that that we would not ever be embarrassed or tired of hearing your law preached, knowing 
that there are unbelievers who are present who may, by your Spirit, be led to conviction, be led to being undone, be led to tears, knowing that they've grieved you. Father, I pray that we, that the church today would lawfully use your law and understand its utility, understand it being a tutor that leads us to Christ. Father, I pray that you would give our presbytery, our church, our denomination repentance. And those men that are confused about the uses of the law would would be granted repentance that we would see on their blogs and with and from their pulpits their confession and change. And Father, when I have failed in it, Father, I repent for that and ask that you would bring conviction and correction. Father, we love you. We thank you for the mercy there is to be found in Jesus Christ, that he is our hiding place. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.